Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode 20 of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, tell us a little bit about our episode today. Yeah, I'm excited about this episode. I'm really excited for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it is the final episode of season one. I can't believe we've already done uh, 20 episodes. It's crazy, but God has done some amazing things through this show already. I'm excited to see what he does um, uh, from here on out. Uh, the, the other reason I'm really excited about today is you out there get to hear my interview with Andy Crouch, which is... Uh, one of my favorite episodes, uh, one of my favorite interviews of uh, the the show so far. And as you heard in the first interview, if you listened to it, between Kelly and I, Andy has written uh, three books. And uh, the, the first two books he wrote were the two books that I mentioned as the ones that had really impacted me recently of books that I'd read. And now this third one, uh, I'm adding to that list. Um, we're going to talk today, as you're going to hear, about Strong and Weak. And it's his latest book, which is phenomenal. So um, get ready to take lots of notes and to be thinking deeply about some really important issues. I agree. I think you're going to be highly encouraged as you listen and come out a better leader. Andy, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Phil. So great to be with you. Well, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation and uh, so much to cover today. But before we get into kind of the bulk of it, which is really going to be talking mostly about your new book, Strong and Weak, um, I just wanted you to be able to share a little bit about uh, who you are and how you became uh, the executive editor of Christianity Today. <laughs> yes, well, by uh, somewhat by accident, I think, would be uh, part of the answer to that. I uh, sort of fell into journalism after 10 years of campus ministry. Um, I worked with college students for my first 10 years after my own college experience, um, but then uh, found, sort of discovered a love for, actually not just for writing, I don't, actually I don't love writing that much, but what I really do love is editing, and editing is just the process of helping other people's ideas, words, um, voice come alive on a page, uh, in the case of uh, written editing. And found myself doing that more and more. Ended up working for CT and after 10 years or so on different projects, now have this role as executive editor. Yeah, it's funny how God kind of takes us into different paths in our lives and uh, really shows us what we love, too. It's kind of funny to say writing is not your your passion, so to speak, but the editing side of it is. And, and yeah. uh, you know, some similar paths for so many people that I've talked to, not only on this show, but just in life that... And we had all these great master plans and then it just changed one day and God has taken <laughs> us to different paths. Um, exactly. So I know that one of those things is, you know, you've been writing books over the last few years. And, and before we get into Strong and Weak, I want you to just share very quickly, because like I said, we have a lot to talk about, as you know. But just, you know, you have two other books, Culture Making and Playing God. And, uh, you know, can you just quickly share what those two books are and then um, kind of why you felt you uh, were, were led to write Strong and Weak? Hmm. Yeah, with each book, uh, given given that I find writing hard, very hard, maybe one of the hardest things I do, so there's a very high bar for me, at least writing books. I don't mind writing short things, but uh, to write a book, I have to feel like there's some topic that is really 
vital uh, for some audience. And, and I, I feel like my job as a writer and thinker is to serve the church primarily in North America uh, in all of its expressions, not just its institutional or religious expression, but in the fullness of kind of who we are as Christians in the world. And that was what led to uh, each of these books. The first one, Culture Making, was kind of came out of the sense that we had gotten stuck in some very unproductive postures toward culture, that we were very good at condemning culture, um, that we were also often just absorbed in being consumers of culture. And I felt like neither of those was really right. And so that book is really about how to be cultivators and creators of culture, how to actually contribute something to culture. Um, and kind of emerging out of that in a way, when you start talking about creating culture, which is where you actually add something to the human uh, project of trying to make something of the world, you quickly get to the question of who gets to do that and why. Um, and that's a question of power. Um, not everyone has the same amount of um, what uh, sociologists often call cultural agency, the ability to actually make a difference. And so then I thought, oh man, we need better Christian resources on the topic of power. And that's what playing God is about. Um, the sort of thesis of that book is that all of our use of power is either playing the true God that is imaging God in the way we're meant to, or it's imaging a false God. And uh, the real temptation of power is that it tempts us to um, actually play the role of an, uh, of an idol, a false God in the world. That was a big thick, complicated book. I think it's uh, maybe not unfair to say because uh, it's a really complicated topic. Um, and then uh, in the wake of writing Playing God, I realized there was one idea from it that could be expressed very simply uh, and very powerfully, you might say, but uh, without all of the kind of depth of argument that was needed for Playing God. And so my editor and I realized uh that a, a short book could come out of this, a short, readable, accessible book, unlike Play God, which is a little more demanding. Um, and that's the book Strong and Weak. And it's just based on one key idea that's actually in the previous book, but but I didn't have the way to picture it. And I'm just trying to put it into a, a slightly more accessible form because I think it's one of the most helpful frameworks for understanding what we're meant to be as human beings that I've come across. Yeah, I agree with that. I, and I, I can say that playing God and maybe it's just because you, you know, I connected with it in, in, a, in a lot of ways. It was just a fantastic book that I, I do strongly uh -huh. recommend all three of these books um, to everyone out there because it's <laughs> got so many things that, you know, you take each of them individually and they're so powerful and you put them together into the way you did. I thought it was just, it was fantastic, fantastic book. So thanks for putting that together. And, and so with Strong and Weak, as you said, it's one of those ideas from Playing God. And there are so many in Playing God, I could spend probably 10 podcast episodes to talk through them. But uh, <laughs> this idea in Strong and Weak, uh, you, you use a two by two chart and, and you contrast this two by two chart with linear thinking. And I know that there's so many, so much to that, but can you just kind of walk through the difference between the two? Yeah. Often, it, uh, 
in all kinds of dimensions of life, we feel like that we have to choose between two alternatives. And the one I start the book out with is actually by talking about parenting. Uh, not all of us are parents, but all of us had parents or someone who played that role. And uh, often when you're in the midst of parenting, or even when you're looking at it from the kid's point of view, um, we think that we have a choice between being strict and being warm. Um, so are you going to be a sort of loving, kind parent, or are you going to be a harsh, you know, authoritarian parent? And the interesting thing from about 40 years now of studies, studies of what's called parenting styles is that psychologists have found that actually the most effective form of parenting in the sense of the kind of parenting that actually leads children to really grow up uh, psychologically healthy is strangely enough, in a way, both strict and warm. It's not one or the other. Um, it, it's parents who set very clear boundaries for their kids and, and, and high expectations, but also have a lot of personal warmth. So it isn't really a choice between those two. Uh, actually, parenting is this kind of paradox of finding a way to both set clear boundaries and also be very warm and emotionally available to your kids. So what you can do with that is this thing that uh, you know business consultants love to do and that I think uh, is often very useful, which is make a two-by-two two where you put you know strictness on one axis and warmth on the other, and then you realize there aren't just two options. There's actually four options. You could be neither strict nor warm, and that's parents who are just completely absent and not engaged with their children. They don't set boundaries for them, but they're also not emotionally available. Uh, then you could have one or the other. Those are two corners. But then the really helpful way to think of it is uh, what would it what would it look like to be up and to the right? Uh, that is high on both, and that's where you have healthy parenting and uh, flourishing children. So the two by two is a way of taking two things that might at first seem like they're opposed to each other and realizing they actually go together. And so what are the two things in strong and weak then that uh, you have um, fleshed out throughout the book and what do they, what, what is the concept in playing God that you have brought to this new book? Yeah. So in, in a way it's really, it's a, a more general form of that same uh, kind of parenting model because actually parenting is very much about how do you help other people flourish? And I think the right use of power is to help other people flourish. And how do we do that? Well, uh, in strong and weak, the, the words I use in the book are authority and vulnerability. Um, so my sort of master two by two <laughs> in strong and weak mm -hmm. is, uh, authority on the, the vertical axis and, and vulnerability on the, on the horizontal axis. Um, and so think of authority as the capacity for meaningful action. It's the ability to actually make a difference when you choose to. Uh, if I have authority in a given situation, I don't have this everywhere I go, but in some places where I go, I can act and know that it will make a difference to other people. And then think of vulnerability not just as emotional transparency or openness, though that could be part of it, but more broadly as exposure to risk. Uh, that when I'm vulnerable, I'm I'm facing the possibility that something I care about is really at stake, really could be lost. Um, and I think if you think about the times in your life when you felt most alive, most engaged, when you were making the most difference for the for good in other people's lives, I bet it was a time when you were high in both authority and vulnerability. That is, on the one hand, you had some real capacity to act, but also there was some sense of risk. And that's sort of the master plan uh, for the book. And in, in some ways, the, the first part of the book is simply going around the four options. Uh, so we can have high and both, but what would it look like to have one without the other? And then what would it look like to have neither one? Um, 
And each of those turns out to be interesting, and each of them turns out to be places where a lot of us spend a lot of time, actually. Absolutely. And, and that's something I want to just really quickly go through the four quadrants, um, but not, not do too much because I do want everyone out there to read this book. <laughs> yes. And you have so many stories that are throughout the, the book that do flesh out each of these quadrants in ways that um, I know I related to almost each one of them in different ways. And as you said, with parenting, <laughs> in fact, just the other day in a car ride home, uh, which often you get great conversations with your children, um, my one child said, Dad, I want you to be firm, but I also want you to be, you know, calm and, and not get too wow. riled up. And he didn't say wow. those exact words, but, yeah. but it was just, it just, it was pretty funny. I said, wow, that's uh, interesting since I'm having this interview in a couple of days. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, all that to say, I, I think that let's start with the, the flourishing, the up and to the right, um, mm-hmm. where we, I always like to start where we want to be. And, um, can you just share what, um, you know, you have a quote in the book that says when authority and vulnerability are combined, you find true flourishing, not just the flourishing of the gifted and affluent, but the needy and limited as well. In the end, Mm. this is what love longs to be capable of meaningful action in the life of the beloved. So committed to the beloved that everything meaningful is at risk. If we want flourishing, this is what we have to learn. And you kind of touched on that a bit uh, in the in the last answer, but uh, yeah, you know, what does that look like? Well, let's see. I mean, uh, first, let's take two slices of it, maybe. Um, just in terms of what uh, thrills us in human experience. Uh, I mean, I think two kinds of things that we find just incredibly engaging are amazing athletic performances and amazing musical performances. And what's interesting to me about both of those is both of them involve authority. That is, uh, someone has really practiced, uh, whether it's their game or their, you know, musical, uh, ability, their singing or their instrument or whatever. Um, but it's all, you know, where we really want to see it is live. Um, you know, in the recording studio, uh, for example, in music, you, you, you have a certain amount of it. uh, Your vulnerability is limited because you can always try again, but when you're on the stage, (laughs) um, it's now or never it, you, you have to go for it. And we can tell that people, the greatest performances are ones where the performer takes a risk. Um, and people who know all the words to every song by heart and, you know, uh, have it all already all recorded in perfect high fidelity. will go to a stadium where they're seated in like, you know, row 370 just to be in the room when that artist is actually taking a risk and doing it in front of people. And mm. sports is the same way. Like what's compelling about sports is we know here are people who are at the very top of their game. And yet because they have uh, competition or they're sometimes competing against their own personal best or whatever, like there's really something at stake. Um, so this is sort of what we're drawn to is this combination. Now we wouldn't be interested in people who there was a lot at stake, but they had no ability <laughs> right. and we're not, and we're also not that interested in someone just sort of, um, you know, if you find out that actually the whole thing was completely pre-recorded and, and, uh, you know, it was actually a body double doing the dance moves and you realize, <laughs> you know, the artist took no risks, you'd want your money back. Um, right. so that's one way of thinking like, this is what we all long for. And then I think the other component that that quote you read gets to is that this is actually what leads to flourishing for other people who are somehow, who who we are somehow responsible for. Uh, and I, I do think, um, great parent, you know, uh, healthy parents know this. Also, I would say great leaders know this. Um, 
when we think about the the leaders that we admire, they were people who both uh, were incredibly clear in what they were calling people to and had to some extent the resources to uh, hopefully make that happen. But but they were also people who were very clear about the risks that they themselves were facing and that other people were facing. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting. Uh, it's not true of every president um, for whom this is the case, but it is interesting that, that two of the presidents we remember most vividly as being great leaders in American life were Abraham Lincoln and, and John F. Kennedy Jr. And both of them at moments of great national turmoil called for something with a lot of authority for a kind of sacrifice and commitment. And both of them were assassinated. Now, I think there was some, uh, I can't remember his name. It wasn't Garfield. It was like even more obscure. Somebody else was assassinated. We don't really right. remember him. Um, right. So it's not enough just to be assassinated, right? But but <laughs> right. the memory of Lincoln and Kennedy is so powerful hmm. because they paid with their own lives in the ultimate way uh, for the ideals in a way that they uh, advanced. And, and I think that's what we want in leaders is people who are really that committed. Um, and if, if you don't have that, you have a leader who verges on authoritarian or exploitative and who isn't really, who's just there to benefit from the system rather than really lead the system into change. And that leads us into the next one, which is that, uh, the exploitation. And you, you talk about exploitation in the, uh, in really intimately connected, unfortunately, with the suffering quadrant as well. Can you just right. quickly talk about those two? Yeah, well, so expo- exploiting is one name for the quadrant that would be high authority but low vulnerability. And another word for this, by the way, is control. Um, when I have control, real control, I have the capacity to act, so I have authority, but but I know that I'll get the outcome I want. I don't have much vulnerability. There's not much at risk. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is the universe isn't really set up to give us control outside of very limited domains. Uh, I mean, there's very technical senses in which we can have control with certain kinds of machines and so forth. But if you're talking about anything involving other human beings, you, you were never meant to have um, authority without vulnerability. And so in order to get it, you have to essentially one way or another use force or violence. Um, that is uh, the, other people and indeed the cosmos that we live in are not going to give you the control that, that you want. So if you're going to try to get it, you're going to have to kind of extract it from the world and other people, often in ways that do damage to their own dignity and their own um, personhood and humanity. And that's why this the corner and in my uh, grid, it's up and to the left of authoritarian leadership, of, of, of idolatry and exploitation is very connected to the corner opposite it, which is high vulnerability, low authority, which I call suffering. Because actually for anyone to end up in the upper left quadrant with a lot of authority but no vulnerability requires that someone else bear that vulnerability. And and usually it's someone else who's weaker in the system. So when I, in my parenting, let's say, um, kind of get on a control kick <laughs> and I don't know, maybe yeah. this is what your, your, was it your son or your daughter? I didn't My daughter. retain that. Your daughter, yeah. I, what your daughter might've been getting at, um, is that when you get really frustrated, why, you know, you're frustrated 
because you don't have the control or the level of authority you want. But then mm. there, we have this tendency as big grown up people to sort of lash out. Right. And, and the <laughs> child feels that and suffers that. Um, mm. and I've been there as a dad <laughs> and yeah. my kids have I been there on the receiving end of it. When, when that need to be in control generates this kind of lashing out, you know, uh, fortunately maybe for those of us who, um, uh, are relatively healthy. It's just verbally violent or verbally mm-hmm. sort of, um, corrupting in a way, but it still hurts. Uh, yeah. and so the quest to be up and to the left always ends up with someone else down into the right. Hmm. And you use an example in the book on, about pornography. And I think being that this is the think orphan podcast, um, mm-hmm. that pornography is really in that exploitative quadrant. Yes. in a lot of ways. And it also leads to suffering of so many. And a lot of the children that are, you know, orphaned and vulnerable in the world are the ones that are exploited in so many different ways. But in pornography, yep. can you can you just flesh that out that example just a little bit for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, sexual uh, intercourse in the full, I mean, not just the, the minimal act, but the kind of fullness of what it is to, to uh, have a, a, a sexual relationship with another person. Uh, is certainly one of the most vulnerable things you can do. <laughs> I mean, it mm-hmm. is unbelievably vulnerable um, to be sexually present with another human being. It's also, in a way, one of the most authoritative things you can do, uh, not least because if it's between a man and a woman, it can uh, produce a child. That's that's capacity for meaningful action, to bring into light, you know, to life a new being made in the image of God. And what pornography gives us is a kind of sexual authority that is the ability to experience ourselves as sexually powerful, as it, at very much in control, because the user of pornography is totally, well, <laughs> uh, of course, all these things turn into slavery, by the way, that's the right. lie, but, but the feeling is, or the quest is for control, but mm-hmm. completely without vulnerability, without risk, because it's, it's entirely one way. There's no, so the, the, the person being depicted in the porn, in the pornography, uh, is, is vulnerable, is seen, um, is available, but the user is not vulnerable, is not seen, is not exposed. Um, and so it's, it's the, one of our modern idols because all idols promise this authority without vulnerability, but it always comes at the exploiting of another person. And, and it eventually degrades and diminishes uh, the user as well, uh, because we can't mm-hmm. stay in that corner. We can't actually live a life of control. Um, so we actually end up out of control, addicted and enslaved to the very thing that we thought would give us uh, the kind of freedom from vulnerability we sought. Right. It not only breaks down the individual, but also breaks down family, which unfortunately leads to more exactly. around the world as well. So. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And then, um, so the fourth quadrant withdrawal, which is the opposite quadrant, uh, from, uh, or the other corner of, from flourishing. And can you just, uh, talk a little bit about the withdrawal quadrant? For sure. And this would be the, the, uh, the opposite. So it means you really don't have very much authority, but you also don't have much risk or vulnerability. And there's two ways to look at it. I mean, one is this is where every healthy human life begins. And and this is something I think, you know, you in the work you do are keenly aware that that um, many children don't have. That is, they don't they, they're exposed to way too much risk way too soon. But in a healthy 
society and healthy families, children are protected at the, at first. We don't give our kids a whole lot of authority initially. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we put like railings up on their bed so they can't even climb out. But <laughs> but then eventually they figure that out, right? So as we grow, all of us uh, as children kind of acquired more authority. And if, if we were fortunate to be raised in kind of healthy families, our parents allowed us to take more and more risk. And so we're meant to grow out of this quadrant, this corner that I would call safety of low authority, low vulnerability into flourishing high and both. But where it becomes really a problem is when you are on that path towards flourishing and you decide to turn around (laughs) and head back to that safety where uh, your life ideally began. And and that I call withdrawing. It's sort of the choice Mm. to step away from authority and action and to step away from vulnerability and risk. And, you know, honestly, for probably most people alive in the world today, this is not an option for them. They, they step out of the front door of their home and they're in tremendously vulnerable places. Uh, and, but, but if you live in an affluent uh, society and in certain pockets of affluence in places like the United States, you can kind of retreat to your parents' basement and not take a lot of risk, not really attempt much in the world. Uh, but you'll be, you'll be very safe, but you won't be flourishing and you will not be leading to flourishing for others. It's one of the ironies I saw in, in reading the book and just and in thinking about this throughout our world today that, you know, the more affluent, the more safe, comfortable we get, so to speak, the, the further away we get from flourishing in a lot of ways. Yes. And I think a couple examples you used are just the access we have to, you know, these social media, the gaming, right. um, these different things that give us the illusion that we're acting. Uh-huh. Um, so can you just flesh that a little bit um, right. as far as the, that, that concept? And then also just talk about how those things can also be good. You know, everything has its shadow, right? So what, how mm. can they be used for good and how can we get out of this, this real temptation to just kind of be safe in our little bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a saying in our family, the only thing money can buy is bubble wrap. Um, <laughs> yeah, and money can buy you a lot of insulation from the risk of the world. The thing is you're not made for that. We're not made for that. We're made for authority and vulnerability together. So, so the problem with that retreat is that it becomes boring, right? Boredom is sort of, mm-hmm. I think of boredom as frustrated image bearing fundamentally. It's like, I'm meant to be something more. And the really kind of dangerous thing about, um, the gamification of a lot of our lives, but I mean, you can think just very about video games, literally, um, is you can be sitting in your parents' basement. You're actually very safe. Uh, you're not actually attempting much in the world, but in front of you is a simulation of real life. That is, you can act with your you know controller on the screen. Um, you're there's something at stake within the game. You know you can you can lose, you can die if it's a, a first-person shooter type game, whatever. Um, and so you feel like you're really living, but you're actually in your parents' basement. Um, Right. So uh, the, the danger is, I, I actually think, um, the danger isn't that we're just going to sit in the dark afraid to move. It's that we'll sit illuminated by these screens that give us the feeling that we're making a difference when in fact uh, it's completely a simulation. And mm-hmm. while video games are a very pristine example of that, I actually think a lot of social media um, is this sort of exercise and feeling like I'm making a difference and people are liking my, you know, uh, my photo or my post or whatever, but, but they're so thin that I'm not really stepping out into the world where I really could make a difference. 
So I think where these things become more helpful, where let's say uh, certain kinds of you know communication technology become more helpful, is when they're connected to real embodied relationship and risk. So we think about how um, a number of the different color revolutions of the the last five to 10 years around the world, um, which were young people kind of rising up against uh, really systems of exploitation and oppression in their countries, whether it was in uh, the Arab world or in Eastern Europe. um, A lot of those were assisted by, you know, social media, by text messaging, by Twitter, whatever. But these, uh, or, you know, the same thing in Hong Kong. I mean, it's been true all over the world. But the folks using those those mediated ways of communicating were also showing up like in Tahrir Square and in front of the Ukrainian parliament and marching through mm-hmm. Hong Kong with police and in riot gear. They were taking real risks and they were also coordinating it um, using media. That's a totally different thing from the sort of slacktivist, you know, clicking like on a uh, on a. Right. Provocative post. <laughs> so yeah. as long as it's in the service and even playing, you know, video games, I think can train you in certain ways, but you got to get out there and actually play in the real world or else you're not right. being what you were meant to be. And I love what you said. It was just a, you know, I said, how can you start doing this? And I, it was just like, walk out the front door and huh. dare to go for a run without earphones in, you know, yeah. and it was just, it's, it's little simple things. Yeah. Even today I was at my house with my kids and they're looking on Netflix saying there's just nothing to watch. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly my response. And I said, you know, we used to play outside because you know, that's that frustration you were talking about earlier. Anyway. Um, so I think it can, it's simple things. It's just going back to the simple, right. In a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but one way too. Oh, go ahead. Well, just in a way, they're right when they say there's nothing to watch because most mm-hmm. of what's there is so thin. Whereas the, the real world that we're designed to interact with is is thick and it responds when you kind of interact with it in a way that media never does. So when you go outside mm-hmm. and play, um, there's sort of endless possibilities to explore there, which is not the same as much of our mediated world. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, one thing, though, that uh, it's also possible, though, to go out into the real world and do potentially do damage. And I know that <laughs> a lot of talk in the last several years, the last decade, I know uh, Brian Ficker and the Chalmers Center with When Helping mm. Hurts and Stephen Corbett and that book have done, you know, just some great uh, additions to also, you know, Bob Lupton with Toxic Charity, yep. talking about the potential ills of, of missions trips and and ministry, cross-cultural ministry. You talk a little bit about it, and you actually have a story in the book talking about uh, Los Gringos Que Caminan, <laughs> and um, just to, to really discuss the potential for incredible good out of these cross-cultural relationships, but also the potential for um, exploitation yeah. and uh, that could yeah. potentially lead to more suffering. Can you just talk about that for a little bit? Well, I think the the frame for this is the reality that most people in the world live with far more vulnerability than authority. And in some ways, I would say that's the definition of poverty, to to be in that corner where you're highly exposed to risk, but you have basically no capacity for meaningful action. Um, And uh, the danger is that those of us who have more authority come into those settings of great poverty and great vulnerability. And if we aren't careful, we end up, uh, 
kind of bearing down with our authority in ways that actually reinforce the lack of authority in that community. Uh, so the, the sort of central question, if you want to build relationships with people who are in situations of great vulnerability, is how do I avoid reinforcing their vulnerability in the way that I try to help? <laughs> and this is what I think uh, mm-hmm. the, the book When Helping Hurts and, and others, in a way, are they're, they're getting at this, this very subtle, uh, you know, it's, it's all out of a, a genuine desire to help. Um, but it can actually hurt because it does not create authority in the setting we're going to. If I come with all kinds of resources, technical skill, you know, go get them kind of attitude, <laughs> but I'm coming to a community that for multiple generations has been frustrated in their ability to make something of the world. Um, I'm very likely to do damage. So what we have to do, those of us who come from environments of great privilege and power, is kind of over-index on and over-emphasize, it'll seem to us, our vulnerability. And we actually have to go out of our way to identify with vulnerability rather than come, especially initially, with a whole lot of authority. And that's the story I tell about Los, Los Gringos Que Caminan, which means the, the white people who walk. <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. this uh, this uh, couple, uh, I guess eventually they were married, uh, who lived in Bolivia and um, in working with indigenous people in Bolivia, there, there are actually middle-class urbanized Bolivians who, are, who have a lot of authority. But the, the indigenous people of Bolivia who tend to live in the rural areas have very little. And, and this couple discovered that what they had to do was not show up in the white SUV that's kind of the, the international standard for uh, NGOs. <laughs> and right. instead they had, had to actually walk with people and um, sleep out outdoors with them uh, on these long journeys through the countryside and that when they did that something really changed and actually both uh, both groups became more empowered um, but that only happens when you're willing to embrace a lot more vulnerability than seems safe <laughs> uh, when you right. when you've kind of been wrapped in the bubble wrap of Western life for most of your most of your life yeah, I remember the one the one story that you shared, and, and I'd love for you to be able to share it here, just about how they walked out of the meeting. Oh, yeah, and yeah. What happened there? Yeah, yeah. This is kind of amazing, you know. So uh, there's this planning meeting for a, a, a church initiative, and it's a mixed group of with some some gringos, some North American white folks, some urbanized middle class Bolivians who have a fair amount of power, but then also some indigenous uh, Bolivians. And, and the leader, uh, the, one of the white leaders uh, of the meeting, realized that the indigenous Bolivians were not speaking up and were not being given voice. And so he said, well, you know what? Let's change the plan here. And why don't, uh, why don't I and my white friends and some of the urbanized friends, uh, let's go get lunch for the whole meeting. And you, you all keep going. Uh, we're going to unplug our laptops. You know, so he kind of symbolically in all these ways kind of got rid of all that power. And, and they left for a couple hours. And when they came back, uh, the indigenous Bolivians had gotten rid of the table in the middle of the room, had put all the chairs in a circle, had made a bunch of decisions, uh, and it led to one of the first indigenous-led church events in the, in the modern history of Bolivia. Because he, he realized at that moment he had to just empty himself and take this massive risk of saying, you know what, I'm not going to run this meeting. I'm not even going to be in the room. And that was what was needed to really give authority to people who had just learned over many generations. They're never given that kind of uh, scope of authority. Right. 
You also talk about on the flip side, and I think that's that's so good for for us to hear in, in in trips to really you know show our vulnerability to kind of empty of ourselves of authority. We had a pretty good example of that in uh, in Philippians too, right? <laughs> of someone emptying <laughs> himself. Yeah. Um, but there's also instances where sometimes we need to not show our vulnerability, right? Yeah. So. This is what I think may be the most important chapter in the book, honestly, is is where I talk about what I think of as the drama of of leadership specifically is to some extent is always about hidden vulnerability. Um, because the truth is part of what it is to be a leader is to be aware of risks that others in the system are not aware of. That can be the, you know, going back to parenting, which I, I come back to parenting a lot because all of us have had families. <laughs> we aren't all parents, but we all had some kind of family setting. Uh, and I suppose the orphans you work with have, you know, more sometimes systems around them than, than the family mm-hmm. that's ideal. Um, but in parenting, you know, part of what happens is I, I know lots of things about the wider world. And especially when my children are young, I don't share them with my children, uh, because they wouldn't be ready to handle it. And so I have to bear that, or I may know that my wife and I are going through a really difficult time of not trusting one another, not communicating with one another well, but it's part of my job and my wife's job as parents to sort of create an environment nonetheless of support and affection for our kids, even as we work through whatever we have to work through. Um, Mm -hmm. And while leading an organization is not always the same, because in an organization, we're all potentially adults, though we also all carry with us all the vulnerabilities of childhood through our whole life, I think. Um, It is still true that leaders of any organization have to bear certain risks without disclosing them. Um, And and you can see how this can become very quickly toxic and dangerous uh, for leaders to not disclose what everything they know about themselves, about the environment the organization is in. But I actually think it's essential to the health of organizations, of companies, of ministries, um, that leaders learn how to bear vulnerability without sort of handing it on to everyone in the system. Yeah, and there's some great stories about that as well um, in the book. And and uh, but uh, I know that I want to talk about something else that's related to all this. And you you touched on it earlier um, about the idea that, and you talk about this not just in this book, but it, it runs as a theme throughout all your books. Uh, one of the most important things to remember is that we are image bearers of God, and as image bearers, we need to see true flourishing not as an individual thing, but as a corporate thing. Mm. And um, in, I know the, a couple years ago, a few years ago at Q Nashville, you talked about this in the context of the way that we can determine whether a society is flourishing is whether the most vulnerable in that society are given real opportunities to flourish and are in fact flourishing. Yeah. Why is this? Well, I think <laughs> the reason that God grades whole nations, according to scripture, on, on the fate of the vulnerable is really related to this flight from vulnerability that is part of the human condition ever since the fall. Um, so, uh, we're, I would say all of us are bent toward avoiding vulnerability. And that means we, we create systems all the way up to the scale of whole nations that, that for the powerful protect them from risk. So the way, you know, you have a healthy system, uh, whether it's a, a family, a neighborhood, uh, all the way up to a nation, 
is that it's one where the the ones in the system who most remind us of the vulnerability we all face as human beings orphans widows strangers are the three big ones in the in the hebrew bible mm-hmm. that that if we create systems that actually care for them and elevate them and aren't just systems of charity that sort of keep them at a distance and provide minimally, but, but that actually raise them to positions of dignity and authority within the community, which is real flourishing. If the vulnerable are flourishing in that way, I can guarantee, uh, the, the folks who for the moment are more, you know, healthy, have their, have their, uh, family intact, uh, you know, speak the language fluently, they'll do fine. <laughs> the question right. is, what about the person who lost their parents? What about the person who has lost their spouse? What about the person who's a, a stranger in the land and, and, you know, speaks broken English, let's say. That's the test because everything in us wants to offload our vulnerability on those people and not face their vulnerability and help them uh, find authority in the midst of it. And so a healthy culture is one that actually, rather than fleeing from vulnerability and the vulnerable, actually orients its life around including caring for and lifting up the vulnerable and making them part of the life of the community. Hmm. Yeah, and, and to that point, you have said uh, in the book, for a leader to flur- to truly flourish, he or she must enter into the deepest suffering. Yeah. What do you mean by that, and, and <laughs> why is that? You know, I started thinking about this a few years ago um, when I thought about what mastery in any domain really looks like. So what does it mean to be a masterful um musician, but also like, what would it mean to be a masterful surgeon, a masterful teacher, a masterful writer, a masterful coach. And it, it struck me that there's a, there's a kind of technical mastery needed for each of those things. There's sort of technical things you need to learn in whatever sort of your field of work is, but to get to the real level, the, the pinnacle uh, where others think of you as a kind of transformative practitioner of whatever that is, it struck me it almost always, maybe always involves directly dealing with pain. <laughs> um, mm. That there's something about someone who in their field has really dealt with and approached and embraced the pain that comes with that particular domain. And, you know, this is as true of accounting uh, as it is of, you know, uh, medicine or teaching. That that in all these different uh, fields that we work in, there, there are these deep issues of pain um, that are just part of the human experience. And the people who have really achieved mastery are the ones who know how to approach and bear that pain. So I think that... Real leadership is the willingness to go to the pain <laughs> um, and not to avoid it, not to offload it on, on other people, but to somehow integrate it with hope and love into a vision of what it is to share our humanity together. And that's what the great leaders do. Yeah, and then you're also able to truly empathize and truly dive into lives of those who are in that suffering to yes. be able to bring them to flourish and give them the authority that uh, God has given all of us. Right. Yes, that's right. And pain that is not shared is incredibly isolating and, and ultimately dehumanizing. I mean, isolating and dehumanizing go together uh, because we're not meant to be alone. Um, But pain that's shared 
it doesn't stop being pain, but it can become the the sort of material for uh, dignity, actually, and and mutual recognition. And we realize, you know, you may be in more direct pain than I am at this moment, but if we share it, I realize I'm not that far from you. I could easily be you. I I identify with you. Um, and then I'm able to work, to think with you about what does authority look like in the midst of this. Um, right. I a friend of mine just lost his uh, aged father to uh, just old age, really. But uh, his father spent the last couple of weeks in hospice. And hearing the stories, I mean, you know, this is the death that we all will face. Um, and there's no way out. And um, in in one way, when you're at the end of your life, as this uh, gentleman was in his 90s. Uh, you know, you would think there's not a lot of authority left there, but actually when a family can come around in this case, you know, his father, his children's grandfather can be in that room, celebrate his life, hold his hand, uh, listen to whatever communication he's still able to offer. They're granting him all the possible dignity of that moment. And the whole family is transformed by that experience. And if that can happen at the very door of death, how much more can it happen in, in you know, less immediate situations of vulnerability that are nonetheless very real for people uh, at the beginning of life or in the midst of illness, in the midst of life. There's just a lot that can happen for us that actually unlocks real flourishing in the very places none of us would choose to go, but we all end up there. Right. Wow. And that is uh, one of the reasons I, th- I, I think, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, I think, why you say in your book that leadership does not begin with a title or a position. It begins the moment yeah. you're concerned more about others flourishing than you are about your own. It begins when you start to ask how you might help to create and sustain the conditions for others to increase, increase their authority and vulnerability together. Yeah. Am I right there? <laughs> Beautifully read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's a very key idea in the book that leaders are, you know, leadership may have a position or title associated with it, but there's lots of people with positions and titles who don't lead in the real sense because they're really in it for themselves. And then there's lots of people who are profoundly transformative in this environments they're in who don't have a title because they're not in it for themselves. They're in it for others. Um, and, and this is, uh, it's one of the key ideas in the book playing God is that when we think that power is some somehow limited. So if I have less you, or if, if I have more, you have to have less, or if you have more, I have to have less. Mm-hmm. Um, we will, we'll try to hoard it for ourselves. But when we realize that true power, creative power, the power that really transforms the world is, is not limited. It's, it flows out of the abundant life of God ultimately then when I'm a leader, I really don't have to be preoccupied with how do I hold on to my power. It's all about how do I spend myself and pour myself out so that other people gain more proper authority and vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. And if I do that well, uh, I mean, there's no guarantees in this life. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But but it, there is a guarantee in the life to come that in the biggest picture, that will lead to flourishing and will and at the end, God will say, well done, faithful servant. Right. Well, that's, that's a little teaser of a interview that I hope we can do in the future on playing God. Um, <laughs> cause there are so many things that I think could play right into all the stuff that we're doing. Um, talking about institutions and some of the other things right. that, uh, you know, I know could 
we could talk for a long, long time. Unfortunately, we don't have that time uh, today, but hopefully in the future we can sit down and talk about that a little bit. Um, two more questions for you. And uh, the first is, uh, we ask these of all our all of our uh, guests, and um, the first one is, what have you read or listened to in the past few months that has most impacted your thinking on uh, these issues we've talked about t- today and how to care for orphaned and vulnerable children? Oh, wow. Well, uh, I would say uh, I've, I, I read a book, um, two books, actually, that just connect profoundly with these themes. Um, so the, the f- first book that was written, uh, and, I, and I think I read it second, actually, is Shusako Endo's book, Silence. Um, Shusako Endo was a Japanese novelist. Uh, Silence was, I believe, his first novel written in the middle of the 20th century. And it's about the persecution of Christianity in Japan. And uh, it's uh, the story of a couple of Portuguese priests who go to Japan, um, hoping to spread the gospel, but end up caught up in this just horrific uh, persecution that really did succeed in some ways in stamping out uh, Christianity in in Japan for 250 years. It's an incredibly powerful a uh, very disturbing, very difficult novel to read. Uh, I wouldn't hand it to your 12 year old. That's for sure. But, mm. um, but for those of us who want to be serious about what is it to be a Christian in a world that won't always, uh, be full of, you know, sunshine, <laughs> it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the book that got me reading it finally, um, is by the contemporary Asian American or Japanese American artist, uh, Makoto Fujimura. And he's written a book called Silence and Beauty, which is about Endo's novel, but is also about the whole story really of Christianity in Japan and how, how actually in spite of 250 years of brutal, uh, repression in some ways, Christianity is the key in a kind of, um, reverse way to all of Japanese culture today. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so the the most just arguably maybe the worst persecution anywhere in the world in in the 2000 year history of Christianity was was the Japan suppression. And yet mm-hmm. Mako argues and makes this incredible case that that Japan has been haunted by this ever since that Shusako Endo's novel um which is celebrated in Japan and which is read by every Japanese is this kind of reclaiming of actually a Christian vision for Japan. It's just amazing. It's, it's Mm. literally about resurrection, how beauty can come out of horror. Um, so, uh, Oh my goodness. Both those books, just incredible, really incredible. I can't wait to read them. Um, I I love when Mm. I hear of books that I, haven't read and uh, these two I haven't hadn't even heard of so I'm, I'm very glad uh, that I have now and I'm looking forward to, to checking them out and, and, and by the I'm way sure a lot of other people are going to be picking those up too and and by the way a part of why they uh, why Mako's book is out is that Martin Scorsese has finished uh, shooting the film version mm-hmm. of Silence for which he bought the rights 25 years ago he's it's his life's dream wow. to make a film about this novel um, which wow. I don't know if you ever heard about about you know this film he made, The Last Temptation of Christ, based on another novel, mm-hmm. and it was very mm-hmm. controversial. And you know, I, I don't even think it was that great a film. But but after he made that film, a Catholic friend of his handed him Shusako Endo's book and says, "This is said, this is the book you need to read and make a movie out of." And Scorsese wow. read it uh, and was so transformed by it that he just he bought the rights um, 
and has been trying to make it ever since, and he's finally done so. So that hopefully will come out uh, late this year or early next year. Wow. Okay, the last question. Um, <laughs> other than Jesus Christ, um, what, what, what person has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding the care of orphaned and vulnerable children? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think my way into the, this particular domain of vulnerability of, of children at risk and, and children um, kind of torn from home, um, it, it came through my friend Gary Haugen, who I met right after Gary came back from uh, directing the, inve- the UN's investigation of the genocide in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Um Gary was a lawyer who had um, worked for the Department of Justice and they got loaned to the UN for this investigation. Um, and and I've had the great privilege of being friends with Gary uh, as he founded this organization called the International Justice Mission, um, which addresses all kinds of vulnerability um, and, and doesn't directly work with orphans per se, but but addresses violence, basically, uh, violence against people who, who are not protected by the law, um, which unfortunately is most people in the world can't really rely on the law to protect them from violence. And uh, knowing Gary, meeting him right after he got back from Rwanda, hearing the stories of that experience was what um, it was. What, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the right metaphor, but uh, it's what let the clutch out. You know, like when you let the clutch out in mm-hmm. a car, the gears engage and the right. engine's been running. But once the clutch is, is uh, released, the gears connect with the drivetrain and suddenly you're moving. And and that experience of just hearing his story and watching the unfolding story of IJM is what made me engage with. Uh, really all the categories of vulnerability around the world, including uh, children. So that was where it started for me. Yeah, it's funny. That's one thing we have in common. His book, Good News About Injustice, was uh, one of the things that got me into um, orphan care, which a lot of people say, that's about, you know, trafficking. Well, so many of the victims, it was after researching the trafficking issues that see how many orphan, and they're all vulnerable children who are caught up in it almost by definition. So, yes. um, yeah, Gary's life is definitely a, a inspiration to many. And, um, you know, as a former lawyer myself to, right. to see his path to where he got, it's, it was definitely something in the midst of trying to understand where God was leading me. And so it's a similar story. We don't have time obviously to talk about it now, but to kind of, <laughs> it was not the expected about 15 years ago when I was finishing up law school. Wow. So, um, but Andy, thank you so much for uh, for your time, for sharing with us. And um, like I said, I hope that we can continue this conversation um, in the near future. Well, it has been a pleasure, Phil. I'm so grateful to get to talk. Well, that was a whole lot of fun that uh, I hope you enjoyed as well. Um, Kelly, what, what really of what Andy said um, grabbed you and stuck out to you while you were listening? For me, I think it's definitely just highlighting again uh, the need for vulnerability as a leader. Um, I know Brene Brown has done a ton of research on that, and it's such a hot topic, I think, in our culture today. But just to be a a leader, it's not just about having authority or having power. It truly is about being able to share um, 
a bit about your vulnerable side or those things that maybe you struggle in or those those places where you're weak. And that truly enables others to flourish and that truly allows others to feel empowered as we kind of give away those areas where we're not we're not as strong, but maybe we see those those strengths in other people. And so that definitely, I think, is, is such a good concept to begin to think about as we as we lead others or as we are around others. But also just the fact that when we um, and I think this, especially with um, just the orphan crisis around the world, you just see the exploitation of. Um, of of children and of families and of people and just looking at it in terms of authority and uh, and vulnerability and just knowing that vulnerability is going to exist and there no matter what whether it's as a leader um, who is who's leading through that or also a leader who is um, who's just heavy-handed and focused on their authority and so the, just those concepts I think as we move forward could truly change um, the way a lot of organizations are ran absolutely and and I want to just encourage, as I did in the interview, every one of you out there to grab this book, read it and study it because there is so much more than what we were able to get into today that is in there that applies directly to the work we're doing with these children um, in our backyard and around the world. It also applies to anything that you're leading. As we talked a lot about in the book or in the interview, Um, it applies to our parenting in our own home in so many different ways. And so I'm seeing it more and more as I kind of take a step back. And and I really, it's funny, I felt like I was in a mini counseling session almost during that interview um, because Andy was really uh, diagnosing uh, why I was doing certain things as a dad. And so um, I felt a bit vulnerable during the interview myself. Um, But uh, I, I, again, I just encourage that. I don't think you will be wasting one second uh, when you're reading that book. So as you uh, finish listening to this episode, I just invite you to join us during uh, season two when we're able to interview a whole lot more people and hopefully uh, engage this conversation deeper and deeper as we continue uh, doing this great work together. So thanks again for this download. Thanks again for being a part of this show. And I look forward to hearing from you real soon. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.